Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Yes. Okay, now let's do that pause thing. Um, so I'm just going to pray and then we're just going to take a deep breath, spend some moments in silence or whatever silence comes our way. Um, so Heavenly Father, we just thank you uh, for today. Uh, we just take that moment just like we were singing, where regardless of whatever's going on, which way we are orientated to the world today, whichever way up we feel orientated within ourselves, uh, whether we feel we're back to front, upside down, spun around, or if we're facing the right way and we feel confident and comfortable that we can take this day on. Father, we choose, we make a deliberate decision just to be still in your presence. Um, and for this moment, at least, we're going to let our words be few and just acknowledge that you are the God in heaven. So as we pause, just to take a deep breath of your Holy Spirit, just to focus, just to be centered, just to be here right now, not being pulled into the next thing we have to do, not regretting the last thing that we did, but we're just going to be present to you, Father, for your Holy Spirit just to talk to us or just to sit with us. Okay, Um, so today uh, we're carrying on the Jesus Is series and one of the weirdest things about this series is is that steve has not done a single one <laughs> so you've had to put up with me for goodness knows how many weeks now and, and today we're on to jesus is the way um so i'm gonna unpack this i have a nice picture because steve does pictures um i'm trying to be more like steve I'm trying to be more like Jesus, but Steve's a good stepping stone in that direction for me. Um, So, when I was coming home from holiday last year, it was like a ridiculously long flight. So, I I watched uh, some movies on the plane. And uh, this film that I was watching, it was a proper mind bender. Like, I I kind of didn't know which way it was up. I didn't know which way I was going. Just absolutely mind-boggling. It had this thing about, like, timelines... So it moves forwards and backwards in time. It was something about reverse entropy. There was kind of a moral ambiguity through the whole film. And as the film kind of unfolded, the main character like, who began like, not sure of who he was, and you kind of follow his narrative, and by the end, he's really certain of who he is. So this is like character development and this sense of identity that comes with it. And then at the very end... I didn't plan that. It explains the very first scene. And also, Michael Caine was in the film. Whose films am I talking about? If you know your directors. I'm looking at Pete, because I think he probably would know. Messes with time, doesn't tell linear storylines. Moral ambiguity, confused identity until the last scene. Last scene explains the first scene, and Michael Caine is in it. I'll give you a hint. Michael Bay would be big explosions, big robots, women in not much clothes. That's Michael Bay, right? Oh, right. So any, anybody getting there yet? Okay, Christopher Nolan. Um, 
Christopher Nolan. So if you've watched any Christopher Nolan films, so the Batman Dark Knight trilogy, um, Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Tenet. They're all kind of famous uh, Christopher Nolan movies. And Christopher Nolan, oh, his real famous one, actually, his first film was Memento, um, which, again, really complex, non-linear storytelling. These are classic hallmarks of Christopher Nolan's films. What he does is he takes mathematically interesting ideas um, and actually puts them in an action movie, basically. Really complex storytelling. One of another, another tell of a Christopher Nolan movie, so you've got the non-linear storytelling, is um, the identity of the main protagonist is usually explained um, out of context in the first scene and then you, you wind up with an uncertain protagonist all the way through the film, morally ambiguous, you don't know whether they're, they're truly good or evil, but by the end of the film, they are certain, dead certain of who they are, and then the end of the film always explains the very first scene of the film. Really clever storytelling. Another thing about Christopher Nolan is, Michael Caine is always a wisdom figure in the films. I don't know why it has to be Michael Caine, but it always is Michael Caine. Um, so, fascinating director. Please go check out his films. He's very stylish um, in all sorts of ways. But just like Christopher Nolan and other directors, if you will, I was hoping there'd be more Christopher Nolan fans in the room. Terrible example. I'm sorry, Steve. I'm sorry, Jesus, I mean. <laughs> Freudian slip. Um, but Christopher Nolan has all these tells in his film. You know exactly it's a Christopher Nolan film because of all of these thematic things that he inserts in them. It doesn't matter what sort of story he's telling. So Interstellar is, is a sci-fi action film. Dunkirk is about the, the um, evacuation on the Dunkirk beach. Um, Batman is obviously about Batman. Um, Tenet, I no idea what it's about. Genuinely, I don't know if it's because I didn't have any sleep or because it's a genuinely complicated film. But he has all of these things in it. And you always know that these things are going to happen. So when you go to watch a Christopher Nolan film, you're kind of embracing yourself to have your mind kind of twisted a little bit. But you understand the context of everything that's happened because you know it's a Christopher Nolan film. And it's the same with the gospel writers. The gospel writers all have these very specific tells because they are... Um, authors, they have their own style of writing, but they also have a very specific agenda about what they're trying to tell you. So a really cool thing, uh, Luke, for example. Um, Zachariah and his wife start off, and they're barren, and they're crying out to God for a child. Okay, and it's deliberately meant to evoke one Samuel. Okay, so where you have Hannah crying out for a child, and then that child... Is, is the helper to the main protagonist, which is David in 1 Samuel. So S Samuel comes along and he helps David to his goal. And Luke is evoking the idea that Jesus is the new David. So he has John the Baptist born to this barren family and he helps Jesus to his goal, just like 1 Samuel. So Luke is making a statement about Jesus being the next David, the new, the true Messiah. Okay, or let's take Matthew. Matthew is organised exactly like the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus has these five um, massive preaching chunks. And it's deliberately set up so that it's like the five books of the Pentateuch. It starts with the first five. It starts off with blessing, 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 blessing. And the fifth block starts out with woe, 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 woe. 
And that's deliberately meant to evoke Deuteronomy 28, the list of blessings and curses. Because Matthew is trying to make a statement that Jesus is the new Moses. And so when you get into the gospel writers, you can tell their particular tales and what they're trying to tell you about Jesus. And that's why they write the way they write. But John, who I'm going to talk about today, John is all about Jesus is the revelation of Yahweh, the creator God. Everything that John writes about Jesus is specifically selected to tell you this very point without telling you this thing directly. So it has only seven miracles In the whole book of John, there's only seven miracles because that's supposed to evoke the seven days of creation and rest. Everything that John is trying to tell you about Jesus is that Jesus is God. The God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the creator, God. So this is a wonderful thing. Throughout the Gospel of John, and I touched on this last time when I said Jesus is God, because that's what John's trying to tell us. So John obviously starts off with, in the beginning, because he's evoking Genesis. But he's not saying, he's not trying to evoke Genesis the same way that Matthew tries to evoke Genesis as the first book of the Bible. He's trying to evoke Genesis as the creator, God, is the the protagonist of that story. John's gospel, we find these statements, these ego emi statements. So that's the Greek for I am. So we covered it last time about when Yahweh reveals his personal name, to Moses, he calls himself Yahweh, or he says, the grammatically confusing, I am that I am, or I exist because I exist. And it's really based on the Hebrew verb to be. I am. And so John, throughout his narrative, inserts on the lips of Jesus these I am statements. And so there's three I am statements that occur without a predicative The way you use the statement I am or the way you use the verb to be is I am something. The something is the predicative normative. I'm just looking at Beth, just glancing at Beth there just to make sure my English grammar is correct. So I am Batman. That's how you use that. That's a proper proper sentence. To say I am is a bit of a redundant statement. To say I am at the end of a sentence is really grammatically weird. So Jesus says... In John 4, when he's talking to the the lady at the well. I who speak to you, I am. That is grammatically awkward and it is grammatically awkward in the Greek. In John 6, he comes walking on the water to the disciples who are fearing that they're going to drown. And he says to them, I am, full stop. Do not be afraid. He's not saying I am here. Because that's what in your Bibles will say, and here will be in italics to tell you that word's not actually in the original Greek. They've just put it in there to make it make sense. He says, I am, so don't be afraid. And that's a loaded theological statement. Grammatically horrible, theologically beautiful. And then one of my favourites in a... <coughs> that's a wrong reference. It's actually John 18, 6-7. I don't know how I got five. It's nothing like one or an eight. But when Jesus gets arrested in the garden, he asks his persecutors, whom do you seek? And they tell him, we're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. And they all get bowled over. They all collapse in the garden and they all stand up and he says, who are you seeking? And he says it again, I am. 
And again, grammatically horrible, theologically beautiful. So they stand out three. So the number three is really important to John. But there's also these other I am statements with the predicative normative. And these are also beautiful, rich metaphors uh, about Jesus. So I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. And the one we're looking at today is I am the way, the truth, the life. So all of these statements are all connecting Jesus to the creator God that's revealed through the Hebrew Bible. So I am the bread of life, evoking the Exodus manna. I am the light of the world, which evokes so much from all over the Bible, not least Genesis 1, not, you know, Isaiah prophecies, all of this. I'm the door of the sheep, Ezekiel 36. I am the good shepherd, again, Ezekiel 36. I am the resurrection. So that's some of the, the, the smaller minor prophets that nobody ever reads or remembers their names. It's probably Jeff or Billy or someone. I am the way, the truth and the life. And we're going to unpack the way, the truth and life in three separate sessions i believe steve's probably going to do one (laughs) or you might be stuck with me for another four hours of preaching um and i am the true vine um which again is from isaiah i think it's like isaiah 8 or something definitely all worth unpacking remember like christopher nolan has his tales about non-linear storytelling moral ambiguity unfolding identity of characters john is trying to tell you that jesus is god so through all of those statements john is telling you that jesus is god so do go and look them up any any good students i didn't see anybody making notes so today we're going to talk about i am the way okay so jesus says a lot of things around the way and so when we talk about the way in the context of jesus saying to disciples follow me and then jesus says i am the way We can think about destinations. Where are we going? Jesus is taking us somewhere. Uh, And another image, because that's what Steve does, and he's really good at this preaching thing. I'm not good (laughs) at doing presentations, so I do words. Steve thinks in pictures, I think in words, um, which probably tells you quite a lot. Uh, So John 14, then, the context of I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I love this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. So Jesus has just told the disciples in John 13, so big revelation, John 14, comes straight after John 13. Okay, you can write that one down, take it away, use it if you want. Um, Jesus has just told the disciples he's going to go and die. And Peter's like, well, if you're going to die, I'm going to die with you. And, and Jesus says, slow down, kid. You are going to deny me. And then he says this, but do not let your hearts be troubled. So it's beautiful. Judas, he's just told everybody that Judas is going to betray him. He's just told everybody that Peter's going to betray him. And then he follows those two massive statements to a close group of friends with do not let your hearts be troubled. So Jesus is not coming back saying, you guys are rubbish. What the hell? Like you've been following me for three years and two of you are going to sell me out. No, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he goes on to give them this comfort. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you uh, that I go to prepare a place. Would I have not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. 
and you know the way to the place where I am going. Okay, so John, another one of his towers is terrible Greek and really convoluted sentences. Um, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to the place where I am going. So Thomas says what every one of us would have said. Lord, we have no idea where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, the other thing that we would all say, well, show us the father then and we'll all be satisfied. Jesus said to him, I've been, you, been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Again, another complicated statement, but the funny thing that I noticed about this passage is is that Thomas and Philip get lines. These guys, like, never get any lines. Like, Philip was like, uh, oh, you're the one that saw me in the fig tree when he was called, like he was a friend of Andrew. And then Thomas is just like, I don't believe you. (laughs) But they have two more lines. But this shows you exactly, like, where things are at because they're following Jesus and Jesus tells them that he's the way. So, of course, they're thinking about, well, where are we going? What is the destination? And Jesus says, in a convoluted, backwards, forwards way, the Father. Okay, Jesus, we're following you. You're the way. So what's the destination? Oh, it's the Father. Well, that makes no sense. But okay, well, show us the Father then. Tell us about the destination. And then Jesus has to correct that. You've seen me. Okay, Jesus, that clears nothing up. Admit it, that's how you feel right now. But the thing is, is this is exactly what we want to say. These are, this is the place where we sit. Thomas and Philip, the, the nobodies of the disciples, they're not even like John or Peter. Thomas and Philip, they have this, this line, these lines, but they're exactly where we sit with this passage. We have no idea, and these are the questions that we would want to ask if we really thought about it. Where are you going? What is the destination? I'll go and prepare a place for you and I'll come back so that you can be where I am. That clears nothing up, Jesus. Can you give us the postcode for the sat-nav? Just so we can punch it in. We just want to know where we're supposed to be going. I am the way to the Father. There is no other way. Okay, Jesus, still a bit fuzzy. Show us the Father then. Tell us more about the destination we need to get to. They struggle to grasp what Jesus is telling them. Not just because John's bizarre way of stating things and Jesus' enigmatic way of talking. But it's because we have a fixation with the destination. We know this. 
Everything's about the destination. We must get to that place, regardless of how or when we need to get there. And if we can, we're going to get there as quickly as possible. How many of you this morning face stress rounding your kids up and shoving them in the car because you needed to get to the destination as quickly and as efficiently as possible? Because the destination is the thing that matters, not the journey. If you didn't face it this morning, you faced it at least one Sunday coming here. I definitely faced it this morning. Sorry, Nick. That is actually me that needed to be rounded up this morning. And you see, the problem is, is this fixation with the destination is permeated our theology. Because we're all about, are you going to go to heaven when you die? What is your destination? The journey doesn't matter. We need to make sure you get to the destination. So what we do is everything that's about the destination, that is the major thrust of our theology, even in this church. And I think that we're quite kind of different to the mainstream, actually. But even in this church, we still have this this sense, this modern evangelicalism sense of like, we need to get to the goal. And everything else is extraneous. Well, how do you get to the goal? Well, Jesus died and you need to believe in that. So we're going to fixate. And I say we in the broadest Christian sense now, not in this church. On the atonement theory. We need to get that right. And then you need to say the right prayer. But everything in between, you punch in the the postcode into your sat-nav, which is saying the prayer, and get into the destination, that's not very meaningful. Take it or leave it. You've got the destination now in your sat-nav, so that's fine. You're going to get there. The journey doesn't matter. And some really radical cases, when you start to talk about the importance of the journey, how you journey, well, that's legalism. You're saved. You've punched the postcode in your sat-nav. You shouldn't tell people that they need to stop for petrol on the way. You shouldn't tell them that you don't have to keep saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? That's all legalism. You don't need any of that stuff. The grace is that you've got the postcode in your sat-nav. And you're going to the journey. You're going to the destination. Everything else, as long as you're certain about that, that's fine. <coughs> I was trying to get to Stephen Susie's house, the last um, Streams of Life meeting. And literally every road in Coventry has some sort of roadwork on it. I tried like three or four different ways to get to Stephen Susie's house, but it didn't matter which direction I chose because first of all, they all had roadworks on. And second of all, I got to my destination. It didn't matter which journey I chose. I had their, I had their um, destination in my sat-nav because I wanted to find the quickest way and it would reroute me. But if we boil it down into modern terms, there's a phrase that we all know, the ends justify means i think i've got more slides the ends justify the means and we do this all the time in a very literal way we know the most efficient way around coventry how many of you know the fastest way to get from here to your house which direction to go around the ring road to avoid as many traffic lights as possible and if you're really smart you know where all the roadworks are now so you avoid those as well right because it's all about getting to the destination. In this case, getting home from church is probably all about the destination. But 
When we talk about politics, ends justify the means because it's a pragmatic choice, isn't it? We want to have less immigrants in our country. So how are we going to do it? Well, we need to reduce the numbers. The numbers is the end. Less numbers is better. So we can impose certain legislation to reduce the numbers. It doesn't matter how chronically inhumane that is or how it makes the situation worse because it's all about the ends and the ends justify the means. We see it in war all the time. World War II, Coventry bombed. 80% of Coventry destroyed. There was a new word in the dictionary coined because of that. Coventration, it means to literally obliterate something. We had to make sure, we had to send Germany a message for it. So Coventry, mostly known for its industry, was bombed. With incendiary bombs, destroyed. So, but we, we couldn't sit on that. We had to send Germany a message. So what did we do? We firebombed Dresden. The firestorm killed hundreds of thousands of people. Non-combatants. But because we needed to say, we're not going to lie down and take you bombing Coventry, we need to send you a message. The ends justified the means. Okay, maybe, maybe we're going too far out. Too much global politics and stuff. What about this? Marriage. I'm right. We're having an argument on I am right, damn it. I need you to acknowledge and know that I am right. I am justified in talking to you any which way that I want to to dominate this conversation until you acknowledge that I am right. I'm not talking from experience. I've read about this online one time. <laughs> this did not happen in the last two or three days. So, and when I get you to confess that I'm right, however sarcastically, then that justifies the means of getting there. I could be as, as much of a jerk as I want to as long as I get to the end because the ends justify the means. Parenting. This one's going to hit him, isn't it? Getting kids in the car. <laughs> you know when you're all grace and truth? Very vigorously and robustly graceful to your children. Using words of no more than four letters to get them into the car to get to church on time. Because it's very spiritual that you get to church on time. The ends justify the means. It doesn't matter what mood they're in by the time we get here. It doesn't matter what mood I'm in by the time we get here. As long as I get here roughly, vaguely on time. <laughs> because the ends justify the means. But what happens if the means are the end? What if Jesus is the way and it's the way that is the important thing? Because Jesus as the way shows you the Father on the way. See, don't worry though, this is a biblical problem with the fixation of ends justifying means. For the Israelites, they were promised you go into the land overflowing with milk and honey. I'm going to get you out of Egypt and into the promised land. Great. The destination is a beautiful place. The place we're leaving, terrible place. We're all on board with this guy. Yeah, let's do it. We'll go out overnight. We'll get there. 
my sat-nav tells me it's a two-day journey, we're all good. And as the saying goes, God took the Israelites out of Egypt in one night. It took him 40 years to take Egypt out of the Israelites. The journey was because who, what sort of people would they have been when they got to the promised land if they hadn't spent 40 years in the wilderness? It mattered to God. And if you're part of the reading group, going through the Bible, this is something that we're all kind of discovering together. It really matters to God what sort of people they are when they get to the promised land. Actually, the promised land isn't that important. It's the people who get to the promised land that's important. What sort of people are they going to be when they are there? Unfortunately, they're quite disappointing. Because if they would have got there overnight for two days, how long it should have taken, they'd have just reenacted Egypt. What's the most impressive thing that we've ever seen? Egypt. It's just that we were on the underside of power there. So when we get to the promised land, we're going to be on the top side of power. And it still never leaves their hearts. Even though a whole generation who had seen Egypt died in the wilderness and a whole generation that had never seen Egypt were the ones that inherited the promised land. They still, God, give us a king. Give us a pharaoh. Give us somebody to tell everybody else what to do. Let us have an army. Let's do war like they do. And God says all these bizarre things, supposedly bizarre things through Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, don't accumulate horses. Don't trade chariots with Egypt. That's a really pedantic thing, God. Why, why not have chariots? Well, because horses and chariots are military hardware. If you're taking on board those things, it means you're emulating their way of doing life. And I want you to do life in a completely different way. Fair enough, you're a nation and we're going to have to do war. But let's do it this way and not that way. Let's do it, you know, like... Um, let, let's, everybody that has just been married, you don't have to go to war. You know, this is in Deuteronomy. These are the rules about war for Israel. Everybody that's just been married, don't go to war. Everybody that's just planted seed in, 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 in their lands, you don't have to go to war. Everybody with carving animals, animals give birth, not carving animals, like whittling wood or something. Don't go to war. Oh, and if any of you are afraid, don't go to war. That is a really bad conscription. How many people are you going to have in your, your, your standing army? If you've literally said, anybody, all of these people, you don't have to do it. Four or five people turn up. But that's okay, because we don't do things the way other nations do. Because the journey matters more than the destination. It was never about becoming a land-holding nation. It was all about becoming the peculiar people of God. What happens if the journey actually impacts the destination? What happens if the way you travel actually impacts how you perceive the end destination. And actually we do know this. Because when we come to church to worship, how worshipful do you feel if you've just had a raging battle with your kids? Me and Susie both know this from this morning. <laughs> trying to get here with all the fluster. Because everything in our heads was about being in the destination. But what happens if worship was the way we travelled? 
it shapes how we arrive at the destination. It shapes our ability to perceive that we've arrived at the destination. Because no matter that I was physically here, I wasn't here. I was somewhere else. I was somewhere stressing between my notes, trying to figure out some technology and how Emma was feeling. So was I really here? Did I really arrive at my destination? No, because the journey shapes the destination I arrive at. Jesus being the way. Check my slides. Jesus is the way to travel. The practices that Jesus had, he wasn't all about the destination. And again, this, this permeates our theology. What use is Jesus' life if all you care about is him dying? There is no purpose for the life of Jesus if all we're fixated on is getting to the destination. Jesus died, that's atonement theory, done. So Jesus, hideously, could have been crucified as a baby and we'd all be sorted. Because our theology doesn't have space for actually Jesus being incarnate. But what happens if the way, the life of Jesus, the way Jesus did life was an example to us of how to do life? What happens if carving out time to be with the Father is an important aspect of getting to the destination? And we know it is. Because Jesus is in the garden. Father, if it be your will. Once if Jesus surrounded himself with people, awkward people, really difficult people. We're going to have four fishermen. We're going to have a zealot. We're going to have a tax collector. That's going to be my team. Can you imagine trying to manage that team? Travelling through the wilderness of teenagers, no less. I can't manage people. I've tried managing people. I'm a terrible manager. I was talking to Luke at Pete and Liz uh, the other day because he manages a team of, I think, like seven or eight people. I'm like, could never do that. That is definitely not in my skill set to handle people like that. But there's a point. Jesus didn't pick people that got along. He didn't pick easy people to get along with. He picked a diverse background of people, as diverse as Israel would allow him to, to start something new. Everything that Jesus did, remember, we're talking about John's gospel, was to point to the Father. The way of doing things, the way of being Christ-like is more important than the destination. Because if you don't do things in a Christ-like way, you'll never realise that you've arrived at the destination. Following Jesus is about being formed in a very particular, or to use the Old Testament phrase, peculiar way. There was this cool thing, and I've got to credit Steve here, not just because I looked up, look up to him, uh, but because this is actually genuinely cool. So we, we're reading through Deuteronomy. Actually, we've just got into the book of Joshua in our readings. And in, in Deuteronomy 30, I do have it. You can't read it, but anyway, it's there. God, being God knows what's going to happen to Israel because he knows they haven't quite got rid of Egypt in, out of their hearts when they arrive at the promised land. <clears throat> when all of these things have happened to you, the blessings and the curses that I have set before you, if you call them to mind among all the nations where your Lord God has driven you. So basically, God is making this case that you've already failed. You're going to want a king. You're going to become like the nations around you. I tried my hardest with you. We spent 40 years in the wilderness. I gave you loads of rules about how to live. I gave you loads of examples. I blessed you. I showed you how good I was. But still, you're going to walk away from all of that and you're going to walk into trouble. 
When all of these things have happened to you, the blessings and the curses that I've set before you, if you call them to mind among all the nations where your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God and you and your children obey him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, just as I am commanding you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, gathering you again from all the peoples among whom the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if you are exiled to the end of the world, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. The Lord God will bring you back to the land that your ancestors possessed and you will possess it. He'll make you more prosperous and more numerous than your ancestors. You see, because of Jesus, there's always a way back. Jesus is the way. And notice how God tells them the way. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. Now, what does that evoke for you? The Shema. Love the Lord your God. With all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. God is saying, if you just start doing the things that you know to do, if you start walking in the way, you're already back. The way back is simply to step into the way again. It doesn't matter where the destination is, whether you are at the very ends of the earth. If you start walking in the way, you are already back. Because it's not about the destination. It's about the way. It's about the journey. It's about being that peculiar people. And the cool bit is this, the next verse. This is the Steve bit, by the way. So props to Steve. Moreover, always great emphatic words. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, which sounds painful, and the heart of your descendants. They're not going to thank you for that. So that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, that you may live. So the thing is, the way back is to just step back into the way. But the beautiful thing is that God will help you. There's always a way forward. Because Jesus is always the way and he's always with you and he's always the father and he's always showing you the father. So the destination is right where you are on the journey in the way. Once you return to the way, finding the way back to the journey you're supposed to be on, there is always a way forward as well. It's not about the ends justifying the means. The means shape the ends. The destination is never where you are going, it's how you are getting to wherever you are going. I'm going to finish with this. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God... Present your whole selves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world with its thinking around means justifying, ends justifying means, being all about the destination, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I'm going to finish with these statements. Jesus is the way to the destination. Jesus is the way, the only way to know the Father. Jesus is the way to live and move and have our being. Jesus is the way to be fully human. Jesus is the way back for when we get off track. And Jesus is the way forwards. Because when we start walking in the Jesus way, we realise that he is the destination already. So in Jesus' name, help us to be restored by your stories. 
Help us not to be storied by the stories the world tells about how we should be. Father, help us to be fully in the moment, fully in the journey, and know that the journey to wherever we're going shapes how we find wherever we're going. In Jesus' name, amen.